So our belief is that, you know, kind of 50% down for office properties is probably a baseline. It could get worse. It definitely could. It is the perfect storm for a lot of defaults in our market. Very happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Dan McNamara, founder and chief investment officer of Popol Capital. Dan, welcome to Forward Guidance. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jack. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad you're here, Dan. Everyone is talking about commercial real estate. A lot of people are freaking out and people are seeking out experts. You are an expert, not just in commercial real estate, but in a particular subsection, uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities that really is at, is at the, the heart of everything. So before we get into it, how about we you just start and tell us your background and why you started Popo Capital? Prior to Popo Capital, I worked um, at a firm called Matlin Patterson, um, investing in CMBS securities for their internal hedge fund. Um, and we did a lot of different structured products. I focused on CMBS. In 2019, uh, early 2020, we started a, a regional mall short fund where we, we used CMBX as an instrument to short these malls, uh, um, us just believing that kind of the securities were mispriced and that um, CMBX was an asymmetric way to to kind of um, uh, express this. Uh, we, la- we launched it in early 2020. Uh, COVID hit in March of 2020 and uh, the fund did very well. And as we went through 2020, we kind of got to thinking about, you know, how commercial real estate is going to change, not just in retail, but really the focus for us was office. Um, so we thought, you know, what would be interesting, um, and it didn't really exist at the time is if we could create a CMBS credit only fund, a CMBS only fund, um, that could express some of these views as we saw kind of the commercial real estate market changing, um, and the CMBS credit market changing by way of commercial real estate, um, and be able to express these long and short views. Cause, cause our, our real big belief was that, um, you know, 2008 was all about residential mortgages. Um, but we believed post-COVID that the heart of distress going forward will probably be in pockets of commercial real estate. Um, so that's that's kind of how we got here. All right. So commercial real estate entails offices, warehouses, industrial space, multifamily. I'm sure I, I missed a, a, a lot there. And what particularly were you most skeptical of the most bearish of? Because, you know, you can look at office real estate investment trusts uh, like SL Green or Vornado. Those are down probably 70 or 80%, but that's the equity sort of equity layer of the capital stack. You're shorting the actual credits, the, the mortgage-backed securities, the, the package debt, which is a lot more complicated. And you know, needless to say, people who are watching this at home should uh, should not do it unless they know, it, know, know what they're doing. Um, what what made you so skeptical? Because you you know you, you're not an inherent short seller. If you want to go, if you think going long is, is going to make you money, you'll go long. But you've you've gone quite short. Why did you go so short? Yeah, well, we were just looking at the numbers post COVID, and we weren't real big buyers into the belief that everyone was coming back to the office. Um, you know, Labor Day 2020, everyone was supposed to be back in the office after the holidays 2020, early 21, everyone's coming back to the office. And as you looked at the data, it just it didn't feel like you know, we were ever going to go back to where we were prior to COVID. Um, now it's easy to say, you know, as we're sitting here three years later, you know, we were right about that belief. And, you know, we were testing that nonstop and looking at the data and seeing, you know, maybe we were wrong, maybe we weren't. Um, but as we kind of got our arms around uh, really our belief that office has forever changed, we, we started to wade into this short uh, office trade. Um, and we use CMBX, which is um, it's a it's a derivative in our CMBS market. 
Um, we use the double B tranches primarily, which is the most levered part of the capital stack. And basically, um, you know, we buy protection on these securities that, you know, they don't just have office in them. The, the, the CMBS conduit um, deals that back these securities, they have all sorts of commercial real estate. But traditional, or if you look at a lot of the indices, office is usually one of the biggest exposures within these deals. And that's because before COVID, office was thought of as, you know, the safest part of the commercial real estate market. Obviously, COVID turned that, that idea on its head. Um, and now we're looking at it as, you know, it, it's, it's a four letter word. <laughs> it really is. Um, and, you know, we're using CMBX to express that position while taking some long positions too. We don't just short. I think it's going to be the next few years is going to be a really interesting time in the market uh, because I think there's going to be a massive repricing um, across all asset classes in, in commercial real estate. But I think most of the pain is going to be felt in office. Right. So we'll get into the, the weeds and the plumbing of the commercial mortgage-backed securities in, in, in a, later in the interview. But just in a general sense, how bad are things in the offices and how much price discovery has there been across the spectrum of you have the real estate investment trust, you know, Vornado, that trades every single set, day, every single minute. Uh, but then you also have private investment funds that you may not have done a transaction in over a decade. And then you have the banks, which have lent money against that, which is still on the balance sheets. And you have Silicon, you know, the ongoing turmoil in the banking sector, which may dampen banks' appetite to lend. Uh, how bad are things just on the ground in terms of offices? And then also, can we draw a distinction between vacancy rates and occupancy rates? When I was, let's say, November 2020, or maybe summer of 2020, I was in New York City looking at the office buildings and I wasn't seeing a lot of lights on. Uh, and one might conclude, oh, the real estate investment trusts won't do well because people aren't going into work. But actually, they they kind of had a, a second life going into, you know, let's say the middle of 2021 because people were still paying the rent. Even if the employees weren't going to the office, people were still paying their rent. And that's the difference between occupancy and vacancy, which how are you ascertaining the health of specifically offices? Yeah, I mean, the, you bring up a great point, vacancy versus occupancy. It's telling you that it's going to take a very long time for this to play out. So occupancy rates dropped dramatically, obviously, after COVID, but we didn't really have the, the vacancies um, coming for a long time because for the most part, office leases are longer term. We're talking about seven, 10, sometimes longer uh, years on a lease. So in the beginning, no one really... No one really came out and said, oh, we're not going to renew our lease. Or if their lease was due, a lot of people, what they did was they extended their lease for a short amount of time. And the sponsors were very happy. The sponsors of those buildings were very happy to get any sort of extension um, because they believed. And, you know, I think a lot of people did that the world would come back and, and you know, people would be back in the office five days a week and we just had to get through this. So they even short term extensions, they were very happy to grant. Um, we kind of believed the opposite of that. We kind of thought that there was this shift in how we work and that technology's changed and that people like we are right now <laughs> talking via, you know, the computer um, and people are going to get a lot comfortable, more comfortable with that. And, and it's going to be OK to do meetings virtually. But I think that, that this whole idea that everyone was coming back, it, it, it was a little silly. And also a lot of the people that were saying it, they had their interest in everyone coming back to the office full time. So, you know, if you look at the occupancy numbers that Castle puts out on a weekly basis, you're not really breaching 50% in many cities, many main metros uh, that often. Um, I think Austin is usually one of the highest at 60% that they track. Um, so I just think that we're here. The new normal is this 50 to 60% occupancy in the office space. 
Um, and I think given that, and given now that there's not going to be, you know, necessarily as many short-term uh, roles of leases, there's now we're going to be looking for longer-term leases, you know, traditional office leases. And when people go and do that, they're going to want a dramatic repricing in their rent. And that's going to filter down. You're talking about a very levered product, uh, the office space, right? So everyone has a mortgage on it. So small drops in NOI, net operating income, that basically is your rent you're collecting for the most part. Small drops can cause large price drops. Um, and we're seeing that. We're seeing offices trade in San Francisco and LA, but you're seeing prices come down up to 50% in some spots. Some, there's been a few that have been a little bit worse. You know, so our belief is that, you know, kind of 50% down for office properties is probably a baseline. Um, it could get worse. It definitely could. We are vastly oversupplied in office, just like we were vastly oversupplied in, in, in malls or retail uh, three or four years ago. Wow. So occupancy is how many employees are actually in the building. Vacancy is how many rooms and available properties are actually being leased. So the occupancy rates now are much lower than the vacancy rates because people are not in the building, but a lot of people are still uh, uh, paying their rent. So there was a time when the developers could sort of kick the can down the road and okay, the the property, we're still receiving our rent, even if you, know, you, go, you go there and no one's actually there. But what has happened recently where you're starting to see a few uh, sort of the dominoes start falling? And you referenced earlier properties being sold at a significant loss. Do you, you know, whether you want to talk about Blackstone sort of you know, intentionally defaulting on the leases, what have we seen recently over the past, let's say, three months? And then what do you expect going forward? It's just a slow moving train wreck, right? So you, know, you, you, you look at the data and, and all these things are supporting what we're saying, but you know that office is the longest duration asset in our market. Um, retail was different pre-COVID. It was a shorter duration asset. Leases were shorter. So you saw some of these stresses come through quicker. But office takes a very, very long time. And, you know, it usually starts with institutional players um, giving the keys back, usually the most sophisticated. Um, because you have to remember, CMBS is a non-recourse market. So if the owner of the building believes that their equity, maybe they thought they had 30% equity in the deal and they had a mortgage that was 70%, call it simplistically. If they believe their equity is wiped out and they have an office building that they need to, to put in a lot of cash, if they think their equity is zero, then they're going to give the keys back to the lender. And now it's the lender's problem. Um, so that's a very unique thing. Sometimes these strategic defaults are negotiating tactics. And sometimes they are what they are. I mean, RXR came out and said, and they're a very large landlord in New York City. And I believe they said somewhere around, they were going to probably hand the keys back on somewhere around 10 to 15% of their office properties. And that's, I believe they're just invested in office. So that's a very strong statement from some prominent landlords um, in New York City, especially saying that, you know, we don't have any equity left. We're not going to throw good money after bad. And we're going to walk away from these buildings if it's in our best interest. Um, and unfortunately, it's going to be the people who own the loans or the bonds that, that will take the loss. Um, because at some point, um, bid offer, right? And I briefly touched on bid offer and, and why, you know, this is such a slow moving product. The sellers of these buildings, um, we're looking, are always looking for yesterday's pricing, which I understand because in a cyclical market where things go up and down, it, traditionally, if you hold on, you'll eventually get the price you're looking for. But office is not cyclical anymore. It has been for as long as I've been in the business and a lot longer than that. Um, you know, office basically went one way and it went higher. You know, there were blips on the radar. You know, 2008 was a big blip. 
um, 2020 certainly was, and you know, prior to that in the early 90s. But the, the issue now, it's this is a fundamental shift in the way we work. Um, so just like no one's going to that C mall anymore, no, you know, these B and C office spaces are really going to struggle. And not to say that super high quality office space won't struggle a little bit, but I still think that, you know, if you are a business owner, if you're JP Morgan or, or, or Goldman Sachs, who's making their employees come in five days a week, because that's their business model, you know, you're going to need to be in the nicest building. So we're not just bearish, blindly bearish across all office. I do think there are amazing buildings like the one Vanderbilt's in the world that sit above Grand Central and have the nicest amenities. If you're in there and you're making your employees come in five days a week, your employees are probably okay with that. But if you're in a C building that needs a lot of work and you're on, you know, you're in Midtown Manhattan or downtown, unfortunately, downtown Manhattan, um, I think your employees are probably not going to come in five days a week. Mm, That's Interesting, Dan. Yeah. What's class B, class C, class A? I've heard these rankings before, but how do people actually determine what is class A? Class A is your highest quality building and B and C are, are you know, C traditionally needs a lot of work um, and B somewhere in the middle. It, it, you could define it by rent per square foot or whatever, but everyone kind of has their own definition for the most part. But, you know, broadly speaking, B and C are going to be the buildings that need the most work um, to retenant for the most part. So you have a tenant leave. And to get a new tenant in, you're going to need to modify that space, whether it's, you know, it's usually not as easy as just slapping some paint on there. You know, you need to configure the building. So it's expensive to retenant. So even if you can find someone to take the space where, you know, Google or Amazon is, 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 is downshifting their space in a certain building and you do have a startup that, that's going to go in and pay rent, um, you know, it, it's expensive. It really is. So from that perspective, these are the owners, and usually the owners of these buildings aren't necessarily the de- deepest pockets. Um, so those owners are going to need to make a decision. Do they want to sell? Can they even sell? Because can they sell where, you know, at a basis that, you know, keeps some equity in the game? Or they're going to default and just hand the keys back if they decide that there's no equity left. So it is a little bit of a spiral. The biggest issue is we're over-officed and there's there's going to need to be something done about it. It doesn't seem like there's an easy answer out of this mess. Um, we've we've had this constant supply coming in of office space for for many many years. We've had interest rates at zero percent, um, and now interest rates are going up, and we have a fundamental shift in the way we work. So um, overall, you know, it looks pretty grim out there for for every you know office space except the very best. That non-recourse point you, you made is really important. It's good news for the developers, but slightly bad news for banks because if a, a developer uh, wants to step away from the property, the most that they could lose is their equity. So the bank can't go after the developer for anything at all, the developer's you know, personal income or the investment fund at all, other than the building. They can repossess the building, but that's all the banks can do. So if you said that you think offices in some areas you know, uh, can go down as much as 50%, what does that mean for the banks who are on the hook who have lent to the developers, as well as the lenders, the non-bank lenders, shadow banking system, people like to call it, um, you know, commercial mortgage-backed security market, the the private debt funds as well. And in particular, let's talk about just a simple arithmetic, loan to value. You know, I there's a property worth $100 million. You lend $60 million against it. That's a 60% loan to value, 60% LTV. If the price goes down 50%, then the price is $50 million and the loan is $60 million. What happens then? The keys go back. 
because unless you believe that prices are going up before between now and the end of your loan, or if you can get an extension now and the extension, um, it doesn't make any sense to pour more money in the property. So if you get a situation where your equity in the deal, and in that scenario, you know now your building's worth $50 million, but you have a mortgage of 60, you're most likely giving the keys back unless you believe that something's going to happen down the road, that that building's gonna go up in price. Um, you know, everything we're touched on earlier today, it's very unlikely that, you know, some of these lower quality buildings are ever going to see kind of the pricing of five, 10 years ago. Um, so it's what's going to happen then is the keys will go back. It could go back to the CMBS trust. It could go back to the shadow lenders. It could go back to the banks. Um, and they're going to have to figure out a way to work out of these assets. Um, in CMBS, we have something called a special servicer. And when a, um, a property owner, uh, defaults on their mortgage. Um, it goes into what we say special servicing and the special servicer has to decide whether they're going to, they work, they really work with the owner. They, they need to decide whether they're going to try to modify this loan or give forbearance or they're going, they're going to foreclose. If you're close, you know, if, if you maybe you've thought you got 60, 65 million and it's a value on a $60 million loan, you may hang on if you, if you don't have to come out of pocket too much. So you may ask for a forbearance you may ask for an extension for one or two years, but given the pricing and, and kind of the pricing we're seeing and the valuations coming down so dramatically, I think you're going to see a lot of keys, keys come back to lenders. And that's really when price discovery happens. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about a few prints in different cities uh, that are, you know, call it down 50%, but you're going to start to see a bit of a cascade. And, and, and really what I, price discovery comes from forced selling. Um, you know, right now, a lot of the sellers are looking for yesterday's pricing, hoping that everything comes back or, or at least improves a little bit. Um, when we start to see forced selling, I, I think that is when it, it's going to become very difficult because you don't see many institutional uh, accounts or pension funds say, you know, what, we'd love to own an office building today. You know, everyone talks about multi or industrial and, you know, valuations have come down a little bit given cap rates are up just based on interest rates and but they believe in that product long-term. And, and right now it's really hard to believe in office space long-term. So there needs to be a new buyer base and, and we need to really reset values. And, and how far that goes is anyone's guess, but you know, you're seeing in the news, you see BREIT, which owns a lot of different commercial real estate assets. I, I actually don't believe they're heavy in office, but the only reason I bring them up is you know, they, they have a, they've had redemptions for the, the last six months or so, and they have a cap on their redemptions. Now that makes sense. It's very smart because they're dealing in commercial real estate, which is an illiquid asset and they have investors that can get their money back every month. But every month for the last about six months, more than 2% of their, uh, of their AUM has been asked to redeem. I only bring that up because that's another way that there's going to be price discovery. As redemptions come through and, and commercial real estate owners need to sell, you're going to get price discovery. And that can come from redemptions, that could come from banks selling loans or banks selling properties, or that can come from CMBS selling properties. And how much have prices fallen already? Green Street came out and said commercial real estate prices dropped 15% year over year. Um, even that doesn't tell you the story because when you look under the hood and you look at the different sectors and you look at the different geographics behind that, you know that, that, that number to me sounds low, but again, it, 15% for, for a multifamily building is probably a lot more than, you know, the office next door. Um, and I think that's another interesting angle too. You, you're going to have a lot of these multifamily buildings that may sit next to an office building. 
they're going to struggle because maybe you don't need to live as close to the office as you used to now because you're only coming in two or three days a week, or maybe you're virtual. So the, the knock on to other parts of the commercial real estate uh, commercial real estate market is significant. So that you've covered the, the fundamental sto- story in a, a lot of detail. Now, tell me, before Silicon Valley Bank fail, a problem developers were already facing was rising interest rate ex- expenses uh, to the extent that they had entered, they borrowed money with floating rates, you know, loans that it's uh, SOFR or LIBOR plus 300 basis points or, or something like that. How much money they have to pay rises with interest rates. So every single you know, Federal Reserve meeting, they uh, that last that last year where Jay Powell raised interest rates twenty five basis points fifty basis points seventy five basis points that was uh, you know for people who did not hedge their their uh, interest rate ex- exposure they had to pay more and more and more how prob- how how much of a problem was that for commercial real estate developers and it, I guess particularly I'm asking about people who did not hedge or did not hedge anywhere close to it you know you go through the major ETFs and they actually have you know somewhat robust hedging programs how widespread are those hedging programs the properties that you know, are in the CMBS or CMBX that you may be short, are those interest rate swaps sort of part of the deal? So you say, oh, this would make a great short, but they're actually going to make money, you know, because interest rates were at zero and now they're at 5% and they were protected. Or yeah, how widespread is, is the sort of the interest rate hedging, the, the interest rate caps, I think they're called. Yeah, interest rate caps. So you've got two parts in the market, um, whether it's in CMBS or not, you have floating rate loans and you have fixed rate loans. In the, the fixed rate loans are simple, right? So, you know, you have a lot of mortgages out there that were done at three, four, maybe 5%. Um, and they are just what they are. They're fixed for the entirety of the, of the loan. So that is not an issue until maturity. The issue is then on a fixed rate loan, when you come to maturity, you need to refinance that. And every single time, so if you had loaned that building for 40 years and you had a 10-year loan on that building, you kept rolling it. Every single time you came to the market, and roll that loan, not only would you get a lower rate for the most part, but you'd get more proceeds because your building went up. And that's just the effect of a 40-year bull run in interest rates. So fixed rate, you're gonna have maturity issues. What's happening right now is in the floating rate market, which is a unique part of our market, and and I would say the shadow lenders are more involved in the floating rate market, um, is, is traditionally what happens is the shadow lenders would give a loan, they'd probably give a little higher LTV, the, lo- the loan would be floating rate, and most lenders would require you to buy an interest rate cap. Well, when interest rates were low and volatility in interest rates were low, those caps were, were very cheap. Um, but what's happened now is not only have interest rates risen, but interest rate volatility is, is close to all-time high. So all that does is you're, you're buying an option to protect yourself against higher interest rates. But when you have the combination of higher interest rates and higher volatility, the price of that option for someone to sell you that option is massive. And a lot of people can't afford to, to, to re-hedge their property. So a lot of these floating rate uh, loans, they have extension options that the borrower can, can actually just say, hey, I want to extend it for a year. This is in the docs. This is fine. But then they have to go out and buy an interest rate cap. And they may not be able to afford it because they're upside down on their property anyways. They're not making any more money on their property. And now they got to go out and buy this expensive option to to get their extension. And I think that's another way we're going to see stress in the market is these floating rate loans. Even if they were hedged, and a lot of them had to be hedged, not everyone, um, and, and they bought these interest rate caps, they can't necessarily afford another cap. Um, so that, that's another problem. You know, 20, I, I was kind of, the way I looked at it is we were, last year was all about interest rates, not to say it's gone away, but that was the focus of the market. 
we came into this year and for whatever reason, people finally woke up to the office problem earlier on in the year. And I didn't have on my bingo card <laughs> that a regional banking crisis would start in the middle of March, but it, it really is the perfect storm for CMBS and CRE because you have all these things as we go into a recession, which is never good for commercial real estate. I'm not a big believer in the whole, oh, well, when we hit a recession, you know, everyone's going to get their butts back in their seat. I, I don't believe that. I think it's all about efficiency and, and people are going to be very happy to cut their office footprint and people, you know, their best performers, their most efficient performers, they're going to work from wherever they want. Um, so it, it, it's, I hate to be too negative, but it, it is the perfect storm for a lot of defaults and in our market. Commercial re real estate developers, a lot of them do hedge, especially just going through the real estate investment trust, whereas there are banks, especially regional banks that uh, did not have hedges in place, such as Sil Silicon Valley Bank. Um, and I, I guess the reasoning is that banks think that they make money, uh, their, their net interest income sensitivity uh, goes up because as interest rates rise, they can make loans at higher rates. That's why we heard all the time that rising rates were good for banks last year. Uh, a, little, a little ironic given, given everything that happened. All right, so Dan, how severe, we, we set the stage, the fundamental weakness in the area, the fact that rising interest rates were a problem for a lot of developers, the problem that even if they did hedge, they're going to have to put that hedge on at a much higher, uh, it's be a lot more expensive, not even because the interest rate are higher, but because the volatility, they, they buy like a, a swap option or something like that. And the move index is, is absolutely off the charts. It's, it's ridiculous. And uh, um, I've interviewed the, the founder of the MoveX. Um, people can check that out, my interview with uh, the Harley Bassman. Um, Dan, okay, so now that, that's taken up, up to March uh, 9th, I think, the, the day before Silicon Valley, Valley Bank failed. How different is the world now that this huge, uh, you know, not a GSIB, but a, a very a large regional bank, Silicon Valley Bank, fell. Another bank signature was taken over. There are banks, regional banks now, whose stock prices have fell, you know, eighty percent, you know, a little more than close to ninety percent. And these small regional banks, they have a disproportionate lending activity to commercial real estate (CRE), which is what you talked about. Later, we'll talk about commercial mortgage-backed security, your neck of the woods. But just on the regional banking side, how worried are you that these commercial banks, these regional banks, will curb their uh, commercial real estate exposure, as well as you know the worst case, which is call their loans in, which you know, I don't know, even know if, it, if it's even legal. Um, I mean, that's what happened during the Great Depression. But uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that, we've seen it. So the data in the last two weeks in March... Um, commercial real estate lending uh, had the biggest drop in the history since since th they've been following it. Um, so, so basically, uh, the regional banks weren't lending at all in the last two weeks of March, which I guess is understandable given everything that's gone on. Um, what people don't realize is, is that 70% of all commercial real estate loans sit at these small banks that, uh, that have about $250 billion of less or less of, in assets. So regional banks are a huge part of the commercial real estate market. They provide a significant amount of loans. So if they're pulling back, and, and they almost pulled back completely in the last two weeks of March, we're going to have some, some issues on our hands, especially because we're coming into a, a time where there's about, in the next three years, $1.4 of commercial mortgages that need to be refied. So it's the worst possible timing where you, know, you, you have... You have regional banks that have pulled back. We just saw the data, and I, I don't think it's going to get any better in April because now everyone is just worried about their problems in-house and they're not looking to make new loans. Um, you have CMBS issuance that's that's down dramatically. I mean, year to date, we're down about 90% since of, of the issuance we did last year. And last year was not a great year. 
Um, and then you have the shadow banks that are starting to see defaults. Um, in, in our, we have a little portion of our market. It's not so little anymore. It's grown dramatically, but it's called the CRE CLO market, which it, it's uh, loans that are done with a little bit higher leverage, their floating rate, and they're securitized by these, what I would say, shadow banks. Um, all different types of, of, of firms do this. Um, but you're starting to see de delinquencies rise uh, dramatically there. Um, which which shouldn't come to a surprise because you do have higher LTVs, you have floating rate loans. It's 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 one of these things that you know the, the wall of maturity that we you know all spoke about a lot in the last crisis. The wall of maturity is here, um, and we need to figure out a way where there's about 4.5 trillion of of um, debt out there in commercial real estate. 1.4 trillion needs to be uh, need to be rolled or refinanced between now and the end of 2025. So it's pretty ominous there. Mm. And you said the bank, the regional bank extension of, of credit to commercial real estate, you said that's that's already really collapsed. I just want to be clear, you are talking specifically about commercial real estate, I guess it's something that's called CNI, commercial and industrial loans, because sometimes there's a chart that says like bank credit collapse, but a lot of that is that them actually selling like agency securities, which it's confusing to call them credit because they're guaranteed by the government. They're basically treasuries, close to treasuries. So you're actually you're specifically talking about. And I know I know you've done the work. Uh, commercial industrial loans. Yeah. yeah. No. So that that's that's the part where. And if you looked at the data across all of their loans, it, it's kind of similar. Um, you know, they weren't doing any lending. So you know, given that the for whatever reason the the regional banks are a very high percentage or hold a, a very high percentage of their assets in commercial real estate. It's what they know. Um, and even when they buy securities, um, they'll buy non-agency CMBS or they'll buy some, uh, they're, they're like 50% of the not, uh, sorry, 50% of the agency CMBS market uh -huh. um, and 10 to 15% of the non-agency market. So not only are they extending all these loans, but they're actually buying the bonds that are securitized too. So they're a massive part of the market. Thanks, thanks for that. Dan, uh, now let's get into the most complicated part of the, the interview uh, uh, toward the second part of the interview, which is your world, CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed securities. And I just want to say that you know people who they may have read the book or watched the movie, The Big Short, uh, th those were subprime, mostly residential mortgage-backed securities. That is, that, that is different than the mortgage-backed securities that Silicon Valley Bank had on its balance sheet, which were agency mortgage-backed securities guaranteed by the government implicitly or, or explicitly. They had huge losses on those because of interest rate risk, not credit risk. There are agency commercial uh, mortgage-backed securities. Uh, some There's an ETF uh, uh, called that. And uh, uh, But your world, your, the thing that you are specifically short is non-agency CMBC. CBSF. Maybe they call that non-qualified. I don't know if they call that 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 anymore. Not agency. Things where if you don't get paid back, you're on the hook for it. You're, it's not the government is not going to you know bail you bail you out. Uh, at least they have no plans on doing it. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. But um, that and 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 your uh, uh, tranches uh, specifically the lower. There's triple A, double A, single A, uh, triple B, double B, and then the, the equity tier, and then also in the big short. A lot of these single A, double A things, they went bust because of some you know, diversification argument that makes sense in theory if, if people aren't doing mass fraud. But if, if you know, the same horrible lending practices that happened in Florida are happening in California, then they are correlated. Um, but that's, that's sort of uh, the previous world of the great financial crisis. And I just want to you know, introduce the audience that this is a different world that you know, I'm, I'm still learning about it. And, you know, a lot of, 
people uh, who are not experts about, about this, like it's, it's, it's different than the uh, residential mortgage-backed security crisis, but it has similar layers of, of those sorts of tranches. So what are you short uh, and, and why? And, and sort of walk us through the tiers of uh, everywhere from, from double B all the way up to triple A. Yep, absolutely. So it's CMBX and it's all fixed rate commercial mortgage-backed security deals. Um, and, and we get one index a year. Um, it's been, we're now our, our most recent is CMBX 16. Um, you know, the regional mall short was CMBX six to kind of give you an idea. Those were 2012 loans that matured in 2022. And sorry, the X suggest it's an index, right? Yes. So it's an index. It's, it's an index of 25 deals. They, they, they reference the cash bonds, uh, in those deals. Um, and it starts at AAA and it goes all the way down to double B rated securities. Um, double B is the most, you know, levered, uh, index we can short levered tranche we can short. And basically, it's a way to hedge or, or or take a bearish position on certain assets in a trust. Um, so we look at traditionally we do look at the double Bs. Um, sometimes the double Bs are they're not traded as much. They're usually trade about five million up. Um, they are you know to to reference two thousand eight and the big short. Um, back then they were using ABX, which was um, non agency residential mortgage backed securities. And they did have a single name CDS back then too, um, but the Dodd Dodd Frank killed CDS uh, single name CDS um, and with the regulations on the bank. So basically, right now the only way to get short um, CMBS in our market is to use one of these indices. Um, so you've got sixteen of them. You've really got six through sixteen that still trade today because before six was um, pre crisis, and most of those deals have paid off or taken losses. Um, and, you know, we've identified a few tranches in double B space where we believe that for the most part, there's going to be significant losses. A lot of those are going to be come from office, um, but not all. You know, there's some other issues in different parts of the market. Um, there's some retail in there that, you know, we're bearish on. And um, but we just believe that either there will be term defaults, which means they'll default before maturity because they no longer can keep up with their building or, or they realize that the equity is, is toast and it's not going to come back. Or there'll be what I think there'll be is more maturity defaults. Now, the difference is if we think there's going to be more maturity defaults, you do have to pay an insurance premium to have this position. So I don't think this is the big short, whereas everything's going to zero. Um, there's a lot of N N uh, N <laughs> net operating income growth um, in some of these assets classes. So, you know, I think there will be winners and losers, and I think there'll be deals that will pay off. But you don't have to be right on all of them to make money uh, shorting these things and hedging your book with these things. So we pay about 500 basis points a year to have this insurance. And, um, you know, it, it, for us, it just seems like a very asymmetric trade, not too dissimilar from the regional mall trade. The only difference is I think it's going to play out over a longer period of time than the regional mall trade, just given the duration of leases in office. So these double B tranches that you were pretty bearish on, where were they trading, let's say, January 2020? Where were they trading March or April 2020 when there was a huge crisis, liquidity crisis? Where were they trading back when there was a resurgence? And, oh, everything's going to be fine. People are going back to the office. And where are they trading now? On cents on the dollar. Yeah. So before, the, before, the, uh, before COVID hit in January 2020, you had a lot of these indices kind of trading around 90 cents on the dollar. Um, they traded down dramatically uh, to about 50 cents on the dollar, sometimes even a little bit lower, actually, um, at the depths of COVID. 
And then most of them are covered a significant amount, probably like to the mid 70s to mid 80s. Um, and now a lot of them are trading back down to 60. Um, so it, it's been a bit of a wild ride. Um, we're actually not at the at the bottom. I would say that, you know, a lot of the indices were lower in March of 2020, um, which tells me, you know, there's still there's still meat on the bone from the short side. Um, I don't think there's a significant amount of liquidity this time around, because the one thing that it's hard back before COVID, there were people that were willing to take the other side of the regional mall trade. And they were very happy to collect their carry in an interest, zero interest rate environment. Because if you're collecting 5% on something where interest rates are at zero, you're you're a little more comfortable with the risk because you believe the carry's there and you're not going to take the losses that some people think will come. Now, when you can buy T-bills at almost 5%, a little lower now, um, you know, paying 5% for to, to get exposure to basically a house that's the insurance exposure to a house that's already on fire to me, seems like a gift. Um, so we are we we think it's one of the most interesting things in the CMBS market right now. Um, it's it's definitely a nuanced market. You know, you need an ISDA. You have to be an institutional investor to invest in these things. Um, you can't just go out and you know. I get that question all the time. Well, how can I do this myself? And you can't. You, you know, you have to have an ISDA. These are over the counter derivatives, which is different than you know, say the high yield market where everything's cleared. So you have to go out and open ISDAs with individual banks. So there's really no way for individuals to to short um, CMBX. Um, you have to be an institutional investor. Um, and you know, if you look at where some of the office REITs are trading, you would think that you know the, the correlation is difficult, but you would think that there's still some room for these things to go significantly lower. Right. And if people say, "Oh, but there's a ETF for commercial mortgage-backed securities." As you pointed out, you know, on a prior call, that is mostly either agency securities or AAA, maybe maybe double A stuff. You are short the uh, double B, mostly maybe triple B. I don't know that uh, it was going to get paid last. And the way that these tranches work is, if there's income uh, from a building and it goes off to pay a lender, it goes off to pay the lo- the loans in the double A, the triple A tranche first, and then if there's extra money, which you know, most of the time there is, there's a double A, then the single A, then the triple B, then the double E, then the equity tier. So the, the double B tier and the equity tier get paid last. So sure. the reason it's trading at 60 cents on the dollar now is because hmm, there's a risk that, okay, the triple A is going to be fine, but double B, who knows? Nope, you, you nailed it, right? So you've got losses that come up from the bottom that hit the, the B piece and the equity and the, the double B securities first. And your pay downs when, when loans pay off, they pay off the triple the triple A's, um, so that's how the waterfall works. Um, so the most exposed tranches and why they're rated that way are at the bottom. Um, so th- that's that's the structure. The structure of CMBS market in general is pretty simple. On the on the structure of the trade, you know, if people have ever been short something, they short a stock at seventy dollars, it goes to sixty five dollars, they make five dollars. That's kind of easy to track. Um, you know, if you if you if you if you are tracking it, um, but options are much more complicated. And a credit default swap, you know, are you are you just short an index that oh the index is at seventy five and it goes to seventy? We made five five bucks, or is it you're saying you're paying five percent a year in premium? Is that the cost to borrow the ABX? Is that the option that you're putting on? You know, does, is it, are you being paid off if it all goes to zero when you've you know, presumably have gains on uh, credit default swaps as as the CBX has gone down, CMBX has gone down. 
Is that because they're increasing the chance that it will go to zero? Sort of walk me through how the trade works. Yeah. So th- that's the the advantage is, right, if you're shorting a stock, theoretically, a stock could go to infinity, right? So you have unlimited downside. When you're shorting something in the fixed income market, and if you short something at 70 cents on the dollar, and it goes to in CMBX, and it goes to 50, you could cover these things trade every day, you could say, okay, I've been short, I own protection on this, it went down, I made money, I want to cover. But the other side of the coin is if you believe that the ultimate valuation of this thing at maturity, because these are 10 year loans, the ultimate valuation at maturity will be lower than today, you're not necessarily incentivized to cover. So you don't, what I would say, get caught into some of these short squeezes that, I mean, you, there are short squeezes in every market, but you know, you, you don't have unlimited downside. Um, your downside is in reality, if you short something at 70, I guess it could go to par. Um, so you could lose 30 points there. But we view this market as we look at the double Bs as we're nowhere close to kind of where the terminal value will be with these securities. So if, if the market doesn't move between now and maturity, we're very happy to, to, to keep this on because when the resolution comes, when loans pay down or loans take losses, the fundamental, the fundamentals in commercial real estate take over. Um, so, you know, if you saw the big short, there was all these complaints about, you know, the broker dealers that were screwing with the marks of the single name CDS and all these other things. And, you know, if you looked at the fundamentals and why aren't I making money on my shorts, this doesn't really exist. It's an index. It trades daily. Um, you know, everyone has a different view, but for the most part, all the dealers put in their prices on a nightly basis and you have a close. Um, it's, it's, it's the only thing in our market that has a nightly close. Um, so when maturity comes, the loans either pay off, you know, default or get extended. Um, and, and those are really the only three options. Um, so it's, it's, it's a cleaner way to do it. Um, there's less games being played. Um, but that being said, there's 25 deals in every index and, you know, there's about 1200 loans in a lot of these indices. So it's a lot of digging through collateral to kind of come up with your own opinion on, you know, what you should be short or what you should be long. So you're short the double Bs and you remain so despite the fact that you've already had significant price declines. How do you feel about the top part of the capital stack, the single A's, double A's, triple A's? You know, there were short sellers who made a lot of money in a great financial crisis by getting a credit default swap on a double A, which people, no one thought they would ever go bad. And, and some of them actually did. Uh, but sounds like not this time around, right? I don't think so. I mean, listen, I think there's parts of the securitizations that you could short, you know, at the single A level, the triple B level, where there'll be losses. Um, but like, if you talk about triple A's in general, they have 30% credit enhancement, which all that means is that 30% of the deal would have to be wiped out. Um, and that's on loans that are theoretically, let's just call them 55, 60% LTV. So you'd have to see just massive amounts of losses for AAAs. Now, I think what's going to happen is in the AAA market, these 10-year AAA bonds will probably extend. Um, we talk a lot about a kind of extend and pretend. Um, and we, we talked earlier that, you know, we don't just short. Um, our view is, you know, we want to pair stuff with with these shorts um, because you never know what the timing is going to be. So the one part of the market we really like in CMBS is interest only securities. Um, So interest only securities are strips off of the principal bonds, off of your CMBS principal bonds, and they don't return par. All they are is the excess interest in a CMBS securitization. So the reason we like these is if you can buy enough of these unique structures 
that have, let's just say you buy one that's a two-year interest-only security, but you know you've identified some loans that they're not that bad. You know, maybe they were a 55 LTV and now they're an 85 LTV, but it's a good asset. It's a good sponsor. We think that the keys are not coming back. We actually like interest-only securities off that because you, we know what's going to happen. The special servicers incentivize to extend these things. They're going to get so many keys in the mail from over-levered borrowers that if they think they can give an extension and it's good for the trust, then they're going to do it. So we buy, we pair these shorts with interest-only securities playing for the extend and pretend on one hand. Um, and it, it's not necessarily, extend and pretend, you know, sometimes extensions are good. Sometimes it's extend and pretend and it's just inevitable. The keys will still come back. Um, so that your interest-only securities, all they are is just cash flows um, that trade at one, two, three cents on the dollar. But now because, you know, we thought they were two-year cash flows, but now they're three-year cash flows, they're home runs with extensions. So that's what we have a very unique view on the world where, you know, we're trying to short the most levered properties, but we're actually trying to take a view on kind of the middle ground of properties where we think that, listen, this is a good property. This is a good sponsor. The valuation's down. They're going to have a hard time refinancing, but we think that that's actually a good thing when you buy the IL is what we call it. Okay. And is there an interest rate component to this as well, where you said a lot of these are fixed rate loans. So if it's a 10 year fixed rate loan, part of that is going to lose value as interest rates go up. Like a 10 year treasury note is worth less now than it was two years ago when it, you know the interest rate was close to a hundred basis points. And now it's, you know, uh, a multiple of, of that. Uh, in other words, when you said the double B went from 85 cents to 60 cents, is all of that credit or is there also an interest rate component that as interest rates went up, it's just worth less. And then also on the interest only payment, you don't, you don't get that. It's like the opposite of a zero coupon bond where you're getting it. You know, so I imagine the duration exposure, interest rate risk on what you're long sounds like is, is less as well. No, excellent point. So the, the CMBX is a floating rate instrument. So you don't have you don't have any interest rate. So it's not like um, HYG and high yield where you actually have a duration component to it. It's more like high yield CDX. Um, so so you, you you remove the duration in CMBX. It's an excellent point on the IO, right? So your duration is lower because it's an interest only security versus a PO where if it was a PO, we don't have POs in our market, but the PO would be have a massive amount of duration because you're not getting any cash flow till the end. Um, whereas the IO, you're collecting cash every day. Weirdly enough, you know, extensions, it's the only product that you could be long in CMBS where extensions are good for you or that higher rates are good for you Mm -hmm. because higher rates are going to hurt refinanceability. So if you own something that that you want to extend, it's better in a higher interest rate environment. And that's where we started to get into the trade as we saw interest rates start to move and we were looking for something to hedge our CMBX short positions. but yeah, it's it's for this environment right now. I, I think it's the most interesting part of the market, and it's it's a little bit overlooked, um, and that's because it's a small niche in, the, in our market. You have you know some of these IOs that are, are you know five, six, seven million dollars the entire deal. So it's it's a bit of an overlooked niche part of the market. But you know that's probably why we really like it. Dan, didn't you say that the loans are fixed loans mostly, but it's a floating CMBX? How does that work? Yeah, so it's it, you're right. The loans are fixed. It's all based off the floating component of it. So you don't have any sort of duration in in the index, just like high yield. It's just like uh, HYCDX. I forget what it is. Is thirty. So you're just trading the spread. You're just trading the spread. 
It's 100% spread. There's they, they, stop, they, they flip flop the fixed and floating payments. Got so it. There's no, there's no duration to it. Okay. And then would it, you know, if I were to ask you, are you net long CMBS or net short CMBS? It sounds like you got some longs, you got some shorts, but you know, if I'm, if I'm long Apple short Microsoft, I got a lot of different spreads and trades going on. But like, if someone were to ask me, are you long the market? Are you short the market like beta or are you long or short and how much? We're pretty market neutral. Um, and, and I think we're going to be pretty market neutral for, uh, the foreseeable future until something really cracks. Um, you know, we did add some risk last month when things got a little sloppy. Um, but you know, my view is, you know, I think that there's, there's some money to be made shorting CMBX without a doubt. Um, and there's, there's, there's money to be made being short, but I think the bigger trade here is, is when we sort of get a feeling that the, the market's priced correctly is picking up the pieces. You know, you, you've you, in the big short in 2008, you know, we all heard the, the same big names who made a ton of money. But in reality, there was a lot more money made post 2008, picking up all the pieces. Um, you know, the hardest part was identifying the short and putting it on um, for a lot of those people. And they were amazing at what they did. Um, but even, so, you know, there, there were many more people who made a lot more money investing in good securities after the crash. Um, so our view is if, if you can be aggressive and stay hedged and, and make some money in a tough environment, um, there's going to be at the other side of the rainbow, there's going to be a ton of opportunities. Um, and, that, and that's really what we're waiting for is, you know, stay, stay hedged, be thoughtful about risk, um, make some money here. But, but I do think that the bigger opportunity is, is kind of on the other side. What are you, do you like on the long side other than uh, IO is interest only. And by the way, earlier you said PO, that's a, a principal only. I think principal is like the $100 interest is like the, the yield on top of that. And then, yeah, I, I mean, are you, you think, you know, what kind of yields, yield to worse can you, can you get uh, in, in some of the highest yielding things that you would be interested in on the long side? I mean, is it, I know there's all sorts of commercial real estate. I mean, there's, you know, there's a commercial, uh, there's a real estate investment trust that owns like movie theaters, you know, yeah. um, and bowling alleys, like, sort of it's pick, pick, pick whatever you want. I mean, is it in multifamily retail offices? Uh, what do you, what do you kind of like just on the, on the credit side, you know? Yeah. The credit side of things away from the, I mean, the majority of our book is IO just given the way we view the world and think that there's going to be significant losses. And we think the credit curve is still too flat. We've been saying it for, you know, a year and a half now. And what do you mean credit curve? So I, a lot of my viewers will be familiar with a treasury yield curve, upward sloping when it's inverted, uh-oh, trouble. Then there's the swaps curve. Uh, credit curve, what what kind of curve is that? Yep. So the credit curve is just your AAA is down to whatever you want to measure. It could be the, tri- the double Bs we'll use because that's what we use in CMBX. So if we think it's too flat, we think that you're not getting paid enough to take risk at the bottom of the securitization. We think that the pricing relative to AAAs needs to widen. So that triple Bs need to get um, to be lower in price or, or higher in yield. Um, so when I say the credit curve is too steep, uh, too flat, and needs to steepen, we believe that you know we, we're credit players. That's that's what we want to do. We want to buy the riskiest stuff. Um, but if you're not getting paid for it, you know you got to wait um, because buying something at the wrong price can really hurt you down the road. So. We think that the credit curve will continue to steepen. We think there will be losses coming through. We really like the interest-only trades. You know, we've picked up a few, you know, seasoned credit bonds that we like in kind of the low double digits that are, 
you know, with our underwriting, you could you could double uh, base case losses and still not take a, a dollar of principal hit, which is pretty onerous. Um, you know, a lot of those things come around timing, year end, quarter ends, where you have uneconomic selling. Um, but overall, we're staying away from the real distressed credit bonds um, because we, we just think that they're not fully priced yet. It's it's almost like we talked about bid offer being large in the commercial real estate market where sellers were looking for yesterday's pricing. We get that in the CMBS credit market too. Um, so there will be an event, there will be something that forces the hand of some of the weaker players where they are going to need to raise money or, or for whatever reason, there's downgrades and um, there needs to be sellers. And then I think it's when we'll, we'll jump in when, when the pricing is a, a little more appropriate. Got it. So prices have to go down a, a fair amount before you, you get a, uh quite very interested on, on being aggressive on, on, on the long side. So if you said the credit curve is not flat enough, you're not being paid, you know, the sort of academic way to put it, that risk premium is not wide enough. Uh, you need to be paid a lot more to take that double B risk. Below the double B is, is the equity, or sometimes that, that is the equity. The actual equity uh, that can be represented from the real estate investment trusts, uh, like SL Green or, or Vornado, those are down 80%, 85%, seems quite steep. With the caveat that nothing that you say is investment advice or nothing that I say, and that I don't think you invest in these real estate investment trusts, you only do the credits. I mean, how how wide do those risk premia look in those uh, SLG or, or VNO? Um, and you, yeah, what I'm really asking is like, how, do you think it has? Can it go down more? I mean, are, is it possible for these things to go to zero? I mean, it seems pretty pretty uh, bombed out. You're right. It, the leverage in general is 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 usually fairly contained with a lot of these reads. So, it, it, you know, can they go to zero? I doubt it. Um, you know, the, we're talking about the SL Greens of the world that have been around forever, and their stock price is hovering somewhere around they were in like the mid '90s. Um, you know, these are these are companies that are run by very intelligent people that know the market just as you know better than than most. So, um, I I, can, I don't know if it's time to buy these yet. You know, there's a lot of headwinds in the office space, and there's going to be a lot of money that needs to be spent. Um, to up, uh, upgrade these buildings, but um, it's 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 the most interesting thing right now. I think in commercial real estate is you know looking at the office space, whether it be on the REIT side or the credit side, and, and trying to find bargains. Um, you know we think it's coming. Um, it's just you know the timing. I'd rather be a little late than a little early. Um, so I would you know my advice in general would say just be patient. Um, you know don't don't feel like you're you know you need to hop in right now because you, the Catching the bottom is almost impossible, um, but there will be a sign. There will be some signs out there where it feels like it's an all clear. And, you know, when that happens, even if this thing's up 5, 10, 15 percent, you can get in then and still make it a killing. Dan, on a prior call, you you used the term uh, Ponzi scheme to refer to. I don't know if it was the, the see, somehow the, deal, the deals are structured or sort of the extend and, and pretend. Do you remember? In what circumstance do you use that term? And maybe Ponzi scheme is not the right word, but I was probably talking about the fact that, you know, you, one thing you don't, we, do, we don't t- touch on enough is that the commercial real estate market in general for the last however many years, 40 years, call it just because I like to use the, the 40 year rate uh, interest rate uh, bull run. It's all been about a refinancing game, right? So it doesn't really matter as long as interest rates are lower then you're going to be able to get a better rate and more proceeds. So it's really just been about refinancing the entire time. It hasn't necessarily been about anything else. And we are now entering a world where interest rates are not, you know, we're in a different world. Interest rates are not, in my belief, interest rates are not going back to zero. Um, I'm 
I think that the pricing and the forward curves are a little aggressive with, you know, I know everyone's pricing in cuts this summer, but if we're cutting this summer, there's some much bigger issues out there and you don't want to be, you don't want to have long exposure to commercial real estate. Um, so for me, I think it's something that we all as a commercial real estate and CMBS professionals need to get our arms around is that next time you come to refi, your proceeds are going to be lower and your rate's going to be higher. And that, and that could be for the rest of our careers. Um, you know, it's not going to be about this refinancing wave. And we talked a lot about equity in some of these properties, you know, 30% equity and now it's zero. Well, in reality, if we took a step back, if you owned this property for 40 years and you refied it four times, you don't have any skin left in the game. You've taken so much equity out of that property that you're fine now. So you probably have, if you have a big enough time horizon and you're smart enough to look at the big picture, you're very happy walking away. You're not happy walking away, but you're okay walking away because you're going to say, this was an amazing trade for 40 years for my family or my business. Um, so I, I think that's the one thing that we need to get our arms around is the fact that, you know, this refinancing, just, you know, refining and taking cash, that's over. Um, it's, it's not going to happen. You know, it's, it's going to be a long time. So it starts happening again. Right. Although if there, there's a CEO who's, you know, maybe let's say 45, they, you know, they don't want to hear, Oh, the company may, has made money on this building since before I was alive. Like they, they're thinking of the money that they, you know, are sending their investors on the, on that's on the paper. They're, they're thinking of that as real money. So it, it will be a loss to them. It will. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. But you know, what, what happens with some of these public companies too, is when they give the keys back, their stock usually trades up. Because the market's not stupid, you know. If you're sitting on an asset that doesn't have any equity in it, and, you, and you're pouring cash into it, it, it's it's not a good long-term strategy. Throwing good money after bad is a bad strategy. So, you know, I think that some of the public companies giving the keys back in certain situations will actually, you know, help their stock price. We saw it with some of the mall operators. Um, you know, some of the lower quality mall operators probably should have done it sooner before they went bankrupt. But you know, we we did see Brookfield and Simon, some of the savvier high you know mall operators. They were happy to give the keys back on assets that just weren't going to fit their long term strategy. So I, I think you're going to see that in the office space. It's just going to take longer. Yeah, and how severe do you think this? Uh uh, sending the keys in the mail phenomenon will be individually. It might be good for some, uh, you know, real estate investment trust because they have other properties. Investors are saying, "Oh, they're not going to you know, waste money throw throwing good money after bad," as you say. But on a systemic issue, if lenders start to instead of owning bonds that promise them a secure income going forward, they start owning a lot of keys, which have, which will have a lot of buildings. That's a problem. I mean, you know, if I'm a banker. I'm a banker. I make loans. I'm not a real estate developer. I don't know what to do. Like, how does this, how does this end up? If I'm a, if I'm a commercial uh, mortgage, I bought CMBS because some, you know, salesman told me it was a good idea. Suddenly I, I own part in a securitized building. I'm, I, I, what, I own like the double A tranche of the 13th floor. Like what's, what's going on here? How does this end, end up? So what's going to, I think what's going to happen is on the regional banking side, you know, what you'll see is they don't want to foreclose. They don't want to, it's a lengthy process depending on the state. And, and they don't want to own the real estate. So what's going to happen is you're going to, you're starting to see it now, you know, you're these debt funds that are looking to, to buy assets out of um, these banks. So you, they'll sell the note at a deep discount so that they don't have to deal with the foreclosure. They don't, you know, a lot of these regional banks, they're lending to their local community. Um, they don't want to be, you know, seen as this vulture that's taking over a building. And in fact, they didn't want the building anyways. It's just that no one paid the mortgage. Um, so you're going to see a lot of loans up, up for sale. Um, you're definitely going to see that. On, on the CMBS side, 
We have a special servicer that does this. They work closely with the CCR, which is the controlling class representative, which is for the most part, just basically the owner of the bottom piece of that's left in a deal. Um, and what they do is between the special servicer and the CCR, they will foreclose um, or get a deed in lieu. So they're not to go through the process um, and they will take over the property and then they will liquidate it at the, at the, you know, in whatever time and they feel is the best interest of the trust. Um, so it's, it's going to be a combination of, of a lot of different things. Um, but you're going to see a lot of note sales and, uh, and on the asset side, you're going to see a lot of assets come out of CMBS trusts. Right. So, um, the banks, rather than having to foreclose on a property, they'll just sell it at, at a discount. I want to ask about the sort of asset liability, uh, mismatch, which banks kind of always face in that their demands are, are, uh, can be called overnight because so frequently they don't get called overnight. And in fact, you know, some people have had bank deposits for 50 years. Uh, you know, they, banks assign a duration to that, to the bank deposit, but they can, they have the option. So they're kind of, you know, always, and that's why banks have to be, you know, um, so regulated or definitely people have to keep a, a close eye on that. You referenced earlier, like Blackstone. Okay. They may be having some issues with their commercial, uh, um, uh, loan book, commercial properties, but yeah, people can only withdraw so much money every single month. It's a open-ended fund, but it's closed-ended. There's a, there's a, there's a limit. Um, there was a piece by the European Central Bank about open-ended real estate funds that have that mismatch where people can take their money at any time. And what is a better example of an open-ended real estate fund than a than a regional bank? Uh, because they have de- deposits that can be called at any time. Like you know, I'm hoping that. Uh, when banks report that the deposit flight has stopped I'm, I'm, or, or slowed down significantly, I'm hoping that that's correct and that they they don't um, and that they can replace the, the funding in time, even if it's at a higher cost, they'll have to raise deposit costs, whatever. But you know, what if the bank runs continue? What happens to those to those buildings? I mean, Silicon Valley Bank didn't really own any buildings. Was, they were not a big commercial lender, no. um, unlike Signature Bank, which was. Yeah, those were two different situations there, right? So Signature Bank was one of the largest lenders in the, the New York City metro area, mostly multifamily. Um, and, you know, they were very aggressive in that space. And again, we were talking about multifamily, which out of all the asset classes in commercial real estate has done pretty well. Um, you know, valuations are down a little bit, but their their issues were, were different. Um, you know, uh, Silicon Valley Bank was, you know, they're buying 2% mortgages and they had, like you said, they, they had a deposit base that could take their money out at any time. And their 2% mortgages, when interest rates go up three, 400 basis points, what, that, what happens in the residential mortgage market that doesn't happen in the commercial real estate market is your duration gets a lot longer. And the only reason your duration gets a lot longer, simplistically, is because there's nobody that's prepaying a 2% mortgage because they're not going to go refi into a 6% mortgage. Uh-huh. Um, so they were sitting on all this paper that at the time they thought was, uh, let's say, a six, seven, eight year uh, duration, and it extended to a 15 or 20 uh, year duration. So that is just asset liability mismatch at its finest. Uh-huh. Um, there was no credit issues there as far as I know. I'm not a bank analyst, but um, you know the signature bank situation was a little more different. Um, you know, I, I thought what was telling was I think it was New York Community Bank that bought their yep. loans but they left their commercial real estate behind. So that to me is not a great sign because if someone looks under the hood, who's also a large lender in the commercial real estate market, you know, it could have been, it could have been a concentration thing and maybe that's all it is. Um, But you know, the fact that they didn't buy the commercial real estate loans and that the FDIC is going to auction the loans off um, that's not, that that's worrying a little bit. 
Um, and, and, and I think it should be worrying for all the banks because you're starting, you're going to get price discovery and nobody really wants price discovery when you're already long these assets. Um, so it's, it's going to be, I, I think the signature bank situation and the auction of these commercial real estate loans is going to be a huge kind of experiment in price discovery. And, you know, it's going to force other people to take some marks that maybe they don't want to take. And What's your outlook on non-office properties if, you know, people are still paying the rent in multifamily, if the retail situation, you know, it's it's fine, not as bad as office. Why and these CMBS CMBX structures that in some cases you are short, they are not consisting only of office but other the whole sort of range of commercial uh, uh, real estate. What's your outlook on those non-office CMB CMBS? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, hospitality is one area we haven't touched on. And, you know, hospitality is definitely kind of a tale of the haves and have nots, right? So if you look at since COVID, uh, when things started to open up again, you're starting to see these leisure, you know, hotels, they're doing amazing. They're doing, you know, well, uh, much better than 2019 numbers. Um, but on the other side, you have these kind of limited service hotels or these, these, these hotels that uh, cater to uh, more business travel. Um, and, and, you know, they're still struggling. Business travel is nowhere close to where it was in 2019. So you have a very bifurcated market in hospitality. So I, it's tough to say that, you know, I, I have a, a, a one view in hospitality, but it, that's what's, you know, it's nice because as a credit picker and someone that goes long and short, you want that. You don't want, you know, to be uber bearish or uber bullish in one sector. Um, uh, multi in general, I mean, we talked a lot about multi. Multi is just a, an interest rate issue. Um, you know, there's a lot of supply coming on the market that worries some. Um, but, you know, I, I think multi is going to be fine. We just got to digest this new pricing interest rate environment we're in and valuations will probably stall out or, or, or come down a little bit. Um, same with industrial. We were priced to perfection. I mean, we had stuff trading in a three cap. That's just it's not possible. Um, and then, you you know, in, in industrial and in, with your warehouses and everything, you know, you've seen Amazon come out and say they're going to put a pause on building or leasing. Um, so that threw a little bit of a wrinkle there. But, you know, there are headwinds um, across across the board. But but there's definitely if, you know, you can kind of pick through the, the heap of trash, you know, there's definitely some gems out there. And you definitely have some stuff out there that if you're patient, you know, you can find some real interesting longs too. Does the banking sector face similar challenges as holders, owners of commercial mortgage-backed securities if banks themselves hold commercial mortgage-backed securities and they make commercial real estate loans? Like, can you draw a conclusion about sort of the future health of, let's say, the regional banks, not the globally systemically important banks, uh, given that maybe, you know, they're in kind of a similar point of view to, to people who own fixed income CMBS? Yeah. I mean, I think that the regional banks in general, you know, I, 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 think what the government's done so far, you know, basically backstopping deposits. I mean, obviously they haven't come back, come out and said that. Um, but, you know, I think that was an important step because no one wants, you know, any more bank runs. Um, and, I, and I hope that we've stopped that. But what's happening here is that, you know, the equity um, of these banks are down dramatically. And again, I don't invest in regional banks, but I know it's, you know, the writing on the wall, given what they own, is that there's going to be massive write downs on, on their portfolio. Um, whether it's interest rate related or or credit related, um, and they're going to have to raise a ton of equity, so that's going to put more pressure on their stock prices. So uh, you know, I would just caution on that side of things that you know be patient because you know again, catching the bottom here is is not is not the goal. 
um, you know, it's about kind of getting comfortable with the risks and getting, you know, an all clear um, and, and really price discovery. We haven't had price discovery yet. Um, so I think this bank earning season is going to be the most important bank earning season in, in a very long time. Um, and I think you're going to have a lot of banks come out, you know, mid-sized to small banks come out and raise equity um, because the, they have to. I mean, they really do. You know, you've, you've, you, we've kind of looked under the hood a little bit at a few of these situations and, um, you know, it's, it's not looking great. But I, I don't think it's a solvency risk. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, you know, it, it's an equity risk and, um, you know, to go out there and, and just blindly buy these banks without, without fully understanding what's under the, uh, under the hood is, is it might be a little early for that. And we're recording on Tuesday, April 11th. This will likely air in two days on a Thursday. On a Friday, that's when JP Morgan comes out with their earnings really kicking off the, the big bank earnings season. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm interviewing Chris Whalen on, on Friday, so folks should stay tuned for that. Yeah, w- what are you going to be keeping your eyes at when you look at the books of the regional banks as well as the important banks? I mean, just the the levels of loans that they've been making. Is it a little confusing given that the quarter ended on, I think, March 31st for, <laughs> for many banks, but the you know the banking crisis didn't start until the 10th of March, I think. So you're getting two months of pre-crisis in there. Yeah, it's. I think it's good. This just this one look at it. I think it's probably too early to tell everything. I think you're going to have a lot of them come out and raise capital after the fact. Um, so it's tough to say exactly. There's probably not one thing I'm laser focused on. Um, but, you know, given what we do in our market, it's clearly the exposure to the commercial real estate market. But generally, it, you know, one individual bank is not going to change our investments. Um, it's more of a broader picture. And, and we know the broader picture. I mean, the, the regional banks are so important to our market. Um, so, as we enter this wave of, of refinancing, you know, we got to figure out a way to kind of roll some of these better loans. And, and then on some of the more distressed things, we got to find a new buyer base and a new valuation. So it's going to be painful on the loss side, but you know, we'll figure it out. We, the securitization market always uh, finds a way. <laughs> yeah. Dan, in the securitization market, who originates these commercial mortgage-backed securities? Uh, the non-agency ones, agency ones are, you know, uh, uh, originated from the government agencies, but who originates the non-stuff, the non-agency stuff that, that you, your world in and who, who retains this stuff other than you, who owns it? Yeah. So it's, you know, 80% of the market, and it's not the market we play in, but 80% of the market's AAA. Um, so they roughly, so your, your traditional fixed rate conduit deals that we were talking about that are in CMBX. Um, they're originated by all the big players, you know, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, et cetera, Bank of America. Um, all the big major banks have have a CMBS um, new issue business. It's a very profitable business, too, because these loans sit on their books um, for a fairly short period of time in normal t- normal markets. Um, and, you know, they securitize them and they sell the top to insurance companies, banks, even though they've obviously slowed down. Um, you know, real, what I would say, real money buyers of these asset classes. Insurance companies are big buyers. Um, money managers. As you get down the capital stack and you get below your AAA securities and down, the, the, the primary players are um, hedge funds um, like myself. And, um, you know, some money managers will play down there also. Got it. So when you're short a double B tranche and it's mostly owned by hedge fund managers such as yourself and a few long only shops, you're essentially the other someone on the other side of the trade is a hedge fund against such as yourself. So you're, you're betting against another hedge fund or a, a money manager. Yeah. Traditionally in 
you know, yeah, I would say traditionally a lot of times it's the money managers that are on the other side, on the long side. And that's just because at least I think because the, you know when they get money in, it's 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 a lot easier and quicker to buy an index. You know they get inflows and outflows in every day, so it's not CMBS market isn't super liquid, so they're not going to be able to go out and find a bond that quickly. Um, so they may buy the index. Um, so a lot of times the longs, if you kind of break it out, a lot of times the longs down the capital stack are money managers. Not to say all of them are, um, and and primarily the hedge funds who more long short. They traditionally use the CMBX index to to be short, right? And the the damage from the Great Financial Crisis two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine was immense because assets that financial institutions thought of as essentially risk free, triple A, double A, they were severely impaired, and the losses were immense. It sounds like your base case is. The double Bs still have some way to go. There can be a lot of uh, uh, keys in the mail, some banking issues, but that it won't be as systemic as the great financial crisis. Do, do I have that right? And sort of, yeah, how systemic do you think this will be? Yeah. And, you know, JP Morgan came out with a piece, I think it was last week, and, you know, they gave some base case losses for different vintages in CMBS. And I believe, you know, their base case loss on a deal was somewhere around nine or 10%. You know, they had a lot of different scenarios and I don't throw our own loss numbers out there just because it's all such, you know, there are deals that we think will take 15, 20% losses and there are deals we think they'll take 4%. Um, so it's so deal dependent because every deal is different. Um, but I think that, you know, if you kind of use 10% as a baseline, what you're getting at is, you know, you, you're eating into the triple B security. Um, sometimes depending on the security, you're wiping out the triple B, but I, there's not this major worry like there was in 2008 where you had all these subprime bonds that were, that were, you know, donuts, um, you know, triple A CMBS, I think all senior triple A CMBS, we have some, what we call junior and senior triple A's, but I think all senior triple A CMBS in 2008 were money good. Um, you had some junior ones that took small losses, but, um, you know, for the most part, 30% credit enhanced CMBS, it's going to be fine. And uh, well, Dan, people can find you on Twitter at Dan J. McNamara. I, tons of insights about the commercial real estate world that you know, I, I always love following you. So people should definitely uh, follow you. And of course, uh, check out your firm, Popol Capital. Dan, if you could just summarize your views uh, for our listeners, because this has been pretty complex for me, as well as I imagine some, some of the audience. Summarize, what is your views on commercial real estate? How do you see this, this playing out? I think it's going to play out over a long period of time. I don't think this is like a one year or two year trade. Um, you know, given the duration of, of our assets, um, it, it's, it's going to take a long, long time. This is not going to be a blip like COVID where, you know, asset prices sold off dramatically um, and then recovered dramatically. Um, you know, th this also like it's not cyclical in every sector. And I think that that's one of the most important things I, I, I try to get across to people. Uh, we have fundamental shifts in the way we shop and the way we go um, to work. And I don't think those are changing. You know, technology has changed um, in the commercial real estate market, which is a very, very slow moving market. And the CMBS market, by way of that, um, needs to kind of keep up with this. So I think that's going to provide a lot of opportunities um, on the long and short side and then taking advantage of kind of these themes, um, whether that be in office or certain parts of retail or you know, just kind of the, the minor repricings in other sectors. So, um, yeah, I'm excited. I, I think that, you know, the reason we started Popo Capital was because I felt at some point, um, didn't know the timing exactly, that 
commercial real estate and CMBS would be at the heart of distress this time through. And I, you know, I, I, I think so far it's looking that way. And Dan, that's a question I forgot to ask. Uh, it increasingly is, it's not becoming a fringe view that a recession in the, in the U.S. is approaching quite, quite quickly. Based on your outlook on offices, it sounds, what, what is your, what is your view on a recession? And if we don't have a recession, I mean, will sort of your shorts not play out and work against you? I don't think if we're having a recession is even a conversation anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, 12 economists meeting in a, a room up in Boston or whoever decide whether we have a recession or not. I don't, you know, I'm not a big believer in that, but um, I, I fully think we're in a recession. Um, unfortunately, and, you know, the fuel on the fire was last, last month with the regional banks. Recession is one of the worst things that can happen to commercial real estate, but usually it's cyclical. So usually, you know, what we like to do is kick the can. Um, this time, you know, we'll kick the can on some things, some better assets, but you know, there's going to be some real losses too. Mm. And final question, Dan, I, I promise is, you know, eventually, you know, if you're right, we're over office, we have too many offices and it's a long-term secular thing. Office construction should stop or slow to a, a space and ultimately demand and supply could converge. So you're not, you're not a office perma bear, right? No, you know, and I, and I think office supply will, will slow down because you can't get a construction loan today. Um, and those are provided, a lot of those are being provided by the, you know, the regional banks. Um, but the one thing that we need to do is we're oversupplied and we need to figure out a way to, to what, what do we do with kind of the obsolete buildings? That's the biggest question. Um, you know, we have to figure out a way to redevelop. We have to work with the government and figure out a way to kind of incentivize people to redevelop some of these buildings that are otherwise just going to sit empty. Um, so I don't know the answer there. I, you know, redeveloping office is difficult, um, but there has to be an answer for that because it's not just stopping new supply coming onto the market because a lot of the new supply that's already been started, that already has its construction loan that's coming on, probably will do fine. I mean, the Hudson Yards of the world and the one Vanderbilt's, they're, they're nice new properties, but what they're going to do is steal from the, the B and C office space. So we got to, we got to figure out a way to, to kind of alleviate the pressure that, that the B and C kind of zombie offices, as I would call them, um, you know, what they're doing on the market in general. Dan, thanks so much for sharing your time and insights. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Thanks, Jack. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.